0: Good morning, church. Happy Father's Day. Uh, you are going to need a Bible. So get your Bibles out. Open up your Bible apps. If you don't have a Bible, we're, we are going to plow through a whole bunch of verses in the Bible today. You're going to need one. So if you don't have one, just put your hand up. Our ushers are coming around. They will give you a Bible that you can use to follow along in. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, um, whatever one you receive to, to follow along with, just keep that one and take it with you. Um, Along the lines of what's happening in this series, I want to remind you that at 8.30 on Sunday mornings, downstairs at the bottom of the stairs over here, there's a group that meets there called a Discovery Bible Study, and it is a discussion-based group, and what they're going to do is go through the whole book of Acts. And so uh, if you want to join them, never too late. Jump in 8.30 on Sunday mornings and engage in this conversation about the book of Acts that's going to carry on for a while here. All right, this morning we continue in our series called Power. We're studying the first five chapters of the book of Acts. Our goal in this series is to become more familiar with and more connected to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our closest connection to God since the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Holy Trinity, along with God the Father and Jesus the Son, That's easily one of the most difficult things for us to grasp as human beings. That our God is three in one, three persons in one. But God sent the Holy Spirit to live in us and do many things in and for us. And we're going to explore some of those things in this series as we work our way through the first five chapters of the book of Acts. But today, our passage is not as concerned with the Holy Spirit as most of the passages we'll look at. I do not want you to just pass over. I don't want any of us to just pass over this passage for that reason. Instead, today we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk through it. We're going to work through it and then acknowledge the start of a theme in the book of Acts. There's a theme that's going to introduce itself to us. And that theme will be very meaningful to us as we go through our series. So turn now to Acts chapter 1 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 1. Um, Like I said, we're going to cover a fair amount of territory this morning, so I'm just bracing you for that. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26. This passage is the account of the disciples needing to find a replacement for Judas Iscariot who was no longer with them. Let's get right into it, and when we're done reading it, keep it open in front of you. Keep it open in front of you so you can follow along as we go through it. Here now is Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they, Jesus and his disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And then note, there's parentheses here. Luke is adding something. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Nice. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Then they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, "You Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. You've chosen to take the place in this ministry, and an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. All right, keep it in front of you. There's a lot that needs to be explained or clarified here, just expanded on. There's a lot of context behind this passage. For the next little while, let's pretend that we're in a seminary class. Here we go. Verse 12 Then they returned to Jerusalem. Last week, we looked at the ascension of Jesus when he shot up into the sky and returned to heaven to be with his father. They were gathered on the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem and had been instructed by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they returned to Jerusalem. Now, it was not the Sabbath, but Luke gives us details, as he's prone to do, and explains that they were a Sabbath day's journey away from Jerusalem. Well, there were strict religious limitations on how far you could travel on a Sabbath without it being considered working on a Sabbath and breaking the Sabbath law. And so Luke records their walk by using the measurement, just the measurement, of a Sabbath day's journey, which was about three-fifths of a mile. Some scholars say two-thirds of a mile, others stick with 2,000 cubits. Let's just go with three-fifths of a mile, it seems to be the most common. The point is that they were now back in Jerusalem to wait for the promise of God to be fulfilled among them. In Jerusalem, they returned to the place they were staying, an upper room. Now, it could have been the same upper room where they shared Passover before Jesus was crucified. We're not sure. An upper room was a second story room in someone's home or possibly a place like the temple. It was a quieter space, being up above the noise of the street. There were often, these were often extra space, uh, wherever the upper rooms were located, and so would sometimes be used for guests, sometimes get rented out. There's a possibility that this upper room belonged to Mary, the mother of John, Mark, one of Jesus' followers. It's a possibility. Like I said, we don't know for sure. The exact location is not important. This is just the place they were staying And in verse 13, Luke writes out the list of who was there. Now, he's he's listed the disciples once already in his first book, in Luke chapter 6. And he lists them again here, minus one, Judas Iscariot. We'll get to him in a minute. There's a, a small difference in Luke's list this time. He lists the three who were closest to Jesus first. Peter, John, and James get listed first. Their closeness to Jesus was now obvious to everybody. Verse 14 introduces us to the theme that I'll talk about later. Once gathered in the upper room, what did the disciples do? They prayed. It says they were in one accord. Now let me explain, expand on that a little bit. All the believers that were gathered there shared one frame of mind, one perspective. Their minds, their emotions, their wills were united. They were so in harmony with Jesus that they were naturally in harmony with each other. There's a great lesson for us. This is such a great description of what Jesus taught, modeled, prayed for and desired for his followers. One accord, no division. They had a shared purpose at that moment and they were waiting on the Lord together. Jesus had communicated God's promise to them and they were waiting on that promise. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Last week we talked about their shared purpose. It's our shared purpose as well. God declared that we are witnesses of Jesus Christ, heralds of the truth about Jesus. And he declared that we would receive all the power we need to be those witnesses. At some point as God's family, we're going to have to declare ourselves that we have a common purpose. And in that common purpose, we can experience what it means to be in one accord. Our unity, which the Western church sadly has largely lost, is found in the purpose that we share. That purpose should be first in our minds, first in our hearts, first in our decisions and our desires. If we share that purpose openly and honestly... I believe we can experience what it means to be in one accord as God's people. But we have to let go of the tight grip that we have on our own individual purposes. And that's hard to do when our culture screams at us that we are the first authority in our own lives. We have no common purpose. We only have our personal purpose, and that's what matters. Now, note what Luke does in the last half of verse 14. He mentions, as he's done before, the women who were there. And while the culture at that time may have brushed women to the side in many ways, Luke once again mentions them. The women were there throughout Jesus' ministry, tending to his needs. They were there at Jesus' crucifixion. They were there at the tomb after Jesus rose from the dead. They were there when Jesus was proving that he was indeed alive. They were there at his ascension, and here they are again. And Luke also mentions Jesus' brothers. Jesus had four brothers, as in family brothers, and at least two sisters that are mentioned in the Bible. And although his brothers at one point were having a hard time accepting what Jesus had said about who he was, they had turned a corner and were now among his followers. And that had to mean something to Jesus. His mother and brothers were there. Okay, on to verse 15. Um, Like I said, there is a lot of context here. Peter, yep, the same Peter who had really struggled at the crucifixion, has already emerged as the leader among the disciples. And so he addresses the gathering. And the word brothers in this verse is a term referring to the believers, not to Jesus' family. There were about 120 of them gathered. Just think about the significance of this moment. Jesus is gone, the new chapter had begun. This gathering would be the first step in the release of the church under the power of the Holy Spirit. This gathering ultimately led to us being gathered right here, right now, at this place, in this moment. This is no small thing. Peter opens by tying it all into God's great plan. This moment had been prophesied, and now that prophecy had been fulfilled. The prophecy had come from David's mouth or David's pen. It was a prophecy about Judas. And this may have been the first time the disciples had understood that Judas' betrayal was something Jesus knew would happen. Jesus understood the prophecies. Peter's going to quote Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, verse 8. And before that... He says some things about Judas. He says that Judas was a guide for those who arrested Jesus. We know he was. But then look at verse 17, and don't blow past this verse too quickly. He says, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Judas had been one of them. Those 12 had been through so much together, and so rather than just agree with the fact that Judas was a betrayer, let's acknowledge the fact that Judas was also one of the 12 for about three years. The reality that Judas had betrayed Jesus and was now dead had to hurt. I doubt the disciples were celebrating the loss of Judas Luke then takes the time to tell the story of Judas' death. And it's a horror story. (laughs) This story, as Luke tells it, has also become a weapon that some have used against God and against his word. In Matthew 27, there's a quick reference to Judas' death. Matthew 27.5 says that Judas went and hanged himself. But here Luke is telling the story of Judas falling headlong and his guts spilling out. Clearly a contradiction, right? What do we do with that? Well, first of all, we acknowledge that two accounts of what happened by two different people, given at two different times, just might have some differences in them. Secondly, we at least consider that they may be telling the same story. It's possible that Judas did hang himself, but failed. Some believe that he hung himself at the top of a ravine. And if the rope broke, he could have fallen 50 to 100 feet to his death at the bottom of the ravine. Both accounts may be accurate, but this is absolutely not something that we use to discount the scriptures. Luke is known for his accuracy. I mean, obviously, from the description of what happened, he's a detail person. But the field, the field appears to possibly be purchased by the chief priests, not by Judas. Judas, according to Matthew, threw the money he'd been given for his betrayal into the temple There are some who think that the chief priest bought a field with that money, a worthless field for burying poor people or foreigners. It's called the potter's field because there's a lot of clay in the soil, making it virtually worthless for agriculture. And then renamed field of blood, possibly because it was purchased with blood money. Again, not at all worth discounting the scriptures. Judas was dead, and the number of disciples needed to return to 12. Why? Well, to start with, Psalm 109, verse 8 said, let another take his office. But there's more. The number 12 is a significant number in the Bible. It has all kinds of meaning, all kinds of symbolism. For example... Jesus talked about there being 12 thrones in the future for the judges of the 12 tribes of Israel, and those 12 judges will be the 12 disciples. Those 12 tribes are mentioned in Matthew and Luke and are very visible in the Old Testament. They represent the descendants of Jacob, but that's a very long history lesson that we don't have time for. Israel was divided into 12 regions based on those 12 tribes in the book of Joshua, and on it goes. Revelation 21, right near the end of the Bible, records the vision of the new Jerusalem. That vision includes 12 gates on Jerusalem's wall. There are 12 angels on the gates, and each gate has the name of one of the 12 tribes on it. The number 12 was, is, part of God's plan. He established that. So we shouldn't be surprised that the 12th disciple needed to be replaced. And that process began in verse 21 of Acts 1. Judas's replacement had to meet specific qualifications. He had to have accompanied the disciples throughout Jesus' ministry. That was one of them. And he had to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That was the other. That was very specific. And note that even the Apostle Paul would not have been qualified to be one of the twelve. So two candidates were were presented, Joseph and Matthias. And how did they decide between the two? Well, the text tells us how, but don't rush ahead. You might answer that they cast lots to decide. Well, they did, but not until they prayed. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The disciples asked God to show them who he had chosen. They acknowledged God's understanding of every man's heart. That's how they chose God confirmed it through influencing the outcome of casting lots, an act that that appears to be just a game of chance, but that was not the case. Um, Casting lots involved a stone that had numbers on it and they'd roll it like dice um, or some other type of objects that when they were thrown down, they would reveal an answer of sorts in the way they landed. Yes, it seems like a game of chance, I still have a hard time with this one. But God was involved. God determined the outcome. Now we have God's spirit living in us, and he guides our steps. We don't need to cast lots anymore. Um, Can't imagine what would happen in this church if we started making decisions that way. Can you imagine? Elder meetings. Let's cast lots again. It would be very interesting. Tying things together a bit. It's quite possible that Israel's land that was divided among the 12 tribes, that process used this method. So this was not uncommon, but we know it was also used poorly as just a game of chance. That's how the soldiers at Jesus' crucifixion decided who got his clothing. They cast lots. So the disciples were now 12 again. Matthias had joined the ranks. They were ready. And God's timing was being fulfilled. And the very next thing we'll see is the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And Peter Herzog is going to help us cover that next Sunday. And the world would never be the same after the coming of the Spirit. All right. That was a lot to cover. Um, no, there will not be a quiz. Um, although it would be really fun to see. I think it's very rewarding to dig into passages like these and wrestle with the content for a while. I thoroughly enjoy doing it. Um, You don't always get a clear, concise explanation of everything. That's not always the case. But there's something more than explanation or information that I want to close with. There's a value expressed here that I want to highlight because I think it's a value that we should all want. And I mean, really want, strongly desire. And that value, church, is prayer. This is the start of a pattern in the book of Acts. So let's back up and set the scene again. The disciples have been through an incredible series of events, they've been with Jesus throughout his ministry. They've heard him teach, seen his power, enjoyed his presence personally. Then Jesus gets arrested and tried and sentenced to be crucified, and much to their surprise, probably shock, he dies. And the roller coaster of their lives plummets. But three days later, he's back, and the tomb that they buried him in is empty. They get 40 more days with him, and poof, he's gone again. This time for good, as far as they can see, except they were told he'll come back. Now here they sit, following instructions to wait. And in the midst of all the chaos, all the uncertainty, all the emotion. How are they described? They're described as being of one accord, united. They're united around a common purpose, the purpose that Jesus gave them as his witnesses, and in that unity, they pray. Unsure of what's going to happen next, missing Jesus terribly, facing monumental decisions, still residing in a place that had to be at least somewhat unsafe for them, they pray. And what I wouldn't give to be there for that prayer meeting, they prayed in general. They prayed for a specific decision that had to be made about the 12th disciple. They prayed. They prayed for God's will to be done. So speculate with me for a minute. How did they learn to pray? Well, we know that Jesus taught them. And what did he teach them? He taught them what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And so let's assume that they had that template to work with. According to the Lord's Prayer, here's what they might have prayed together. They prayed to their father in heaven and this time with the knowledge that Jesus was there as well. They acknowledged God's holiness. In spite of the injustice they had, <clears throat> they had just witnessed, they declared together God's holiness. They invited the coming of God's kingdom They had learned so much about that kingdom from Jesus. And so imagine then praying that prayer, your kingdom come. They have all of Jesus' descriptive words in mind. They asked for God's will to be done. Not just in choosing the 12th disciple. In everything. How could they not? They didn't know what was coming next. They asked God for his provision. Think of all that had been provided for them through Jesus. He was their daily bread and they would soon experience God providing for them in new amazing ways as he answered their prayer. They asked for forgiveness. And what could this have meant to Peter or any of the others who had abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour? They asked for God to help them forgive others like maybe those who crucified their friend Jesus. And they asked for deliverance. There would be temptations all around them to give up, to choose a different path, to give into the direction their culture would head. They asked for God to deliver them from the evil that was present all around them. Now, as I said, I'm just speculating here. Their prayers were not recorded. I just know what they had been taught regarding prayer at any rate when faced with all that had taken place and all that was taking place and all that would take place they prayed and in the book of acts we're going to see them turn to prayer 31 times acts 114 even says they devoted themselves To prayer. It was passionate. It was frequent. They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, in our series, we're going to see the beginning of something incredible happen. The church is born, and we're going to see prayer at the center of that birth. So, my final thought for this morning is this. With a common purpose, the believers shared a deep devotion to prayer. They depended on God together. They praised God together. They sought God together. They sought his will together. They confessed together. They forgave together. They lived in freedom together. They did all this through praying together. So what would Luke write about us? And I'm just going to leave that hanging there. Not as a criticism, call it an exhortation. Call it a challenge. Call it a prayer. And I ask that it's something that we pray together, all of us. That this would be how our church, Chapel Hill Church, is described in one accord in prayer let's do this right now let's pray together father we have seen your hand move in incredible ways throughout the history of the church In the account that we looked at today, we just see you all over it. We see prophecy being fulfilled. We see a a huge plan unraveled. We see unity. We see devotion, passion. We see prayer. God, in all of these things, will you teach us We grow us. We transform us. It is our desire, Father, that we would be described as a group of believers that gathers in one accord and devotes themselves to prayer. Seeking you, seeking your will, depending on you for provision, for guidance. God, we need you. And I ask that you would help us, that you would open our eyes to see the incredible worth of us expressing ourselves as your family, your kingdom. So we pray together. God, I ask that that would rise up in our midst. We're, we're praying. There are a lot of prayers being lifted up throughout this church family. There are little pockets of people that are praying. I ask that part of our future involves us praying together in one accord regularly in a way that shows that we are devoted to this putting you in front of us, and you have given us your Holy Spirit to help us do this. So every time as we walk through this series, every time we encounter the church praying, every time we encounter something that we need to be praying for, God, will you use that time to create that unity among us? We acknowledge, Father, that we have a common purpose. We are witnesses to Jesus Christ. Close to home and far away. We are those people. We are those witnesses. And you have fulfilled your promise in giving us the power that we need to be those witnesses. And God, in the midst of all that, pray that you would raise up a movement of prayer among us. That expresses our dependence on you, our need for you, our love for you, our worship of you, our humility before you. Father, I just ask for your continued work in our midst, that you would continue to bless this church family. That more and more we would represent what, what started in the book of Acts. Church, that is deeply devoted to you and deeply committed to the calling, the purpose that you've given us. We do that in our midst. Father, as we go now to share a time of fellowship together, I just pray for your blessing on the food, on the conversation, on the time of just building each other up, bearing each other's burdens. Thank you for all that's been provided here. Thank you for our youth and for the the service that lays before them this summer and for all the things they're involved in on a regular basis. Thank you for all of that. Thank you for what you're doing in them. Thank you for what you're going to do in the week ahead. And all these kids, through all the leaders, the volunteers that are going to be there, we just give it to you and ask for you to bless it. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace and peace, Chapel Hill.